Welcome to Neo Academia, where the walls of the ivory tower are shifting. I'm your host, Natasha Mott, and this week I'm exploring the creative thinking behind conspiracy theorists with Michael Shermer. Michael's a best-selling author with a brand new book called Conspiracy. His work is prominent in and outside of academia as the founder of Skeptic Magazine and host of The Michael Shermer Show. But he's also a presidential fellow at Chapman University, where he teaches Skepticism 101. Neo Academia is possible first and foremost because of you. So thank you for listening. And if you enjoy what we do here, please head over to theorygang.io forward slash newsletter, where you can subscribe and even upgrade for bonus content and much more. Thank you for sharing your most valuable resource, your attention. Neo Academia is also possible through support from Readocracy. Readocracy is on a mission to save the internet by making how we inform ourselves matter. So they've created a first of its kind technology that rewards people for consuming high quality content. Readocracy makes the content you consume count, awarding points, badges, LinkedIn upgrades, and insights into your information diet. These insights are like a Fitbit for your mind. They can help you understand how your information diet is affecting how you think and feel. Readocracy has won awards and backing from Mozilla and Betaworks and is used by curious minds at Stripe, Cisco, Zoom, and over 30 other top companies and schools. Neo Academia is proud to be sponsored by Readocracy and has a series of collections curated by me and each of our guests on Readocracy.com. You can get access to these collections and so much more. Just make sure you're subscribed to the newsletter at theorygang.io forward slash newsletter. Now let's explore. I'm in Nashville. I used nice. to be in Portland. But... Oh, I, know. I just realized who you are. <laughs> of course I know you. <laughs> That's right. I forgot about that. Okay. You forgot. You were like, who am I recording with? I don't even know. <laughs> well, I recognized you immediately and then thought, wait, wait a minute, where do I know her from? And you said Nashville, Portland. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We. Uh, well, I first sent an article. It's going to be published in your right. yeah. nationalism issue. Yeah. That the, the Heterodox Academy rejected that article. Mm. And then um, Big Nerve. So, right. Big Nerve. Yep. Yep. Yeah. They're doing cool stuff over there. I really like oh, it. Yeah. Yeah. I hope it keeps up because I think it's really hard to get people to think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but you've got a great audience of people that think. Maybe. I think so. I hope so. <laughs> and I'm, <laughs> you know, I teach a class at Chapman University on Skepticism 101, how to think like a scientist. And, it doesn't come natural. They really have to be trained. And I really think we need lower education reform, like middle school. They should be taking classes on critical thinking and logic and rationality and science and scientific method instead of, I don't know, what do you need algebra for or trigonometry or pre-calculus? I mean, if you're going into a STEM field, then yeah, sure, okay. But otherwise, you know, 99% of students who take that stuff will never use it, but they were more likely be able to use something like critical thinking skills. Like if you hear a claim about UFOs or UAPs, how should you think about it? Just some basic like Bayesian reasoning and putting probabilities on things and base rate neglect and compare, comparing that hypothesis to other hypotheses and asking what's more likely to be true and so forth. Really basic stuff that anybody can understand. Yeah, but they have to want to think that way because your natural inclination is to not look at probabilities. I think you have to train yourself to override that emotional desire mm -hmm. because you talk to these people and they, they just want so badly for it to be true. Yeah, there is that. And also cognitive research shows that we do not tend to try to falsify our hypotheses or our beliefs. What comes naturally is to try to confirm them. Right. Here's what I think is the correct hypothesis for whatever the problem is. Now, let me see if I can find evidence to support it. And, oh, look, I have lots of evidence. 
Okay, but the scientific method says, well, you got to try to falsify it. What would right. it take to falsify your... Well, that's hard to think about, right? Even for professional scientists, they don't want to, they don't want to falsify their beliefs. <laughs> well, and for children whose little frontal lobes are still very plastic. So where do you think, you, you said like in place of uh, algebra, I think you're probably right. But do you think that they're ready at that point? Like what? What happens when you try to put cognitive reasoning in a brain that's not fully developed yet? Well, if you can put, I don't know, pre-algebra and algebra and trig in there, <laughs> right? That's true. And, and there's like another kind of meme that, that media people have is that the general public doesn't want a lot of charts and graphs and statistics. So we can't do that in news stories. Are you kidding me? Have you looked at the sports page or the weather page or the stock market page? I mean, it's just jam-packed with statistics data analysis curves and graphs and when, when i was a kid i used to be a big baseball fan i would study all the sports statistics very carefully if you're interested it's not that complicated yeah you're right but there's an emotional hook i think that they that you have to get them with like their their favorite sports team they feel connected mm -hmm. with them it's not some abstract notion it's this hook and i think there is room for that these days there the hook is we're kind of fucked if we don't do this. <laughs> Isn't that enough of a hook for people to, to realize if we don't inject some rationality into this, we're not going to get where we want to get? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's why in my class, these are 18 year olds. Three months ago, they were in high school. Okay. And I pull them in by using pop topics, UFOs, Bigfoot, aliens, psychics, astrologers, cults, conspiracies, you know, stuff that they're f familiar with and interested in. Like who would not be interested in cults? Why do people join cults? And I start right off by saying no one ever joins a cult ever. They join a group that thinks they think is going to be great. We're going to change the world. We're going to help the poor. We're going to get rich. We're going to whatever your, the, the thing is. And years later, you're drinking the Kool-Aid and how did that happen? So you kind of deconstruct the psychology behind it and they're very interested in that. Yeah, there's a woman who I'm hoping she's gonna come on the podcast, but I've been following her for a while on TikTok and she goes by Kardashian Colloquium. And she, <laughs> okay. I know it, it's great, right? So she takes a lot of media theory and cultural critique and applies it to the Kardashians. So mm. she's applying a lot of these thinkers to what's happening with the spectacle right in front of our eyes and she's having a lot of success of course she's applying postmodern theories to reality but if you can apply those theories to reality surely you can apply some critical thinking logic techniques so that's yeah. kind of why i created syllogism have you seen syllogism the podcast that i have no i haven't seen that one yet <laughs> It's, I don't know why I'm like, I get like a little bit embarrassed to talk about it, but it's syllogism with a J because you've heard of all these kind of like, right? Okay. It's these, we named it that because we kind of have this highbrow critical thinking academic perspective, but we're trying to bring it down to earth. You have to meet people where they are. And so that's kind of what we do with syllogism. Mm. But I think people are, they really appreciate when you're trying to take something that has been kind of kept out of reach and cloistered in an academic mindset, perspective, books, these kinds of places that feel very inaccessible to regular people. I mean, literally they're paywalled out of these things. Mm -hmm. And I think people really appreciate it when normal people are trying to level with them and be like, listen, this is what I'm seeing. And they love these analyses of what's happening in the world. I find in general that media people tend to 
have a, a very low expectations, almost a bigotry of low expectations about their audiences, that they're too dumb or they're not curious enough or they don't want to know. The, the audiences are interested in these things if it's a topic they care about. They can master basic statistics and data, crunching big numbers, things like that, sports, weather stocks. And so in this case, if you have a UFO show, like the ancient aliens, they ne almost never have anybody on that provides an actual explanation for what they're looking at. They'll have like some mythology person that says, yes, these are very old, <laughs> whatever it is. We're standing here at Easter Island and no one has any idea how these statues got here, or how they moved them. It's like, yes, they do. Actually, there's an archeologist at UCLA, Joanne Van Tilburg, who's been going there every year for 40 years. And she's written books about this. Why don't you have her on the show? And at least contrast it. Ancient alien theorists think that the aliens built these statues or, or that the people built them in honor of the aliens or whatever. But for an alternative view, here's Joanne Van Tilburg from UCLA who comes here who thinks that they had some other mythological perspective or whatever it is. Why not, why not present it like that? To me, you'd get a bigger audience. The audience would feel like, okay, these people are trying to be honest. They're trying to be fair. They're giving me their perspective, but at least it's balanced. And most media people think that's not what the public wants. I disagree. I think they, they would like to know that. They have a very specific audience that they're very much pandering to. I wonder if anybody's doing that. Now I'm going to search on TikTok for anybody who's like taking episodes of Ancient Aliens and putting <laughs> the experts up against instead of the guy with the wild hair, you know? <laughs> Giorgio. <laughs> and also, it's good to remember that in that particular case, the show is produced by an independent company. It's not a History Channel production. Mm -hmm. And the company just sells History Channel, the programming. Mm -hmm. In a way, television is a series of commercials with blank spots in between that have to be filled with content that keep people interested in. So they'll just, they'll just buy anything. And you know, there's no ethics committee that reviews shows and goes, well, we better not air this unless it's something like an ISIS produced TV show or something. They're not going to do that. But short of, you know, pedophilia or, you know, rape scenes or violence, they don't really mind monitor and go, oh, well, the ancient aliens people are not being very balanced. We better not air this. There's nobody that cares about that. And right. so, you know, just if it's interesting enough and they have good enough ratings, they'll put it on. Really, there's just no ethics behind it. Right. Well, and this is changing completely with social media. What I've been seeing is companies like Hulu are now taking these TikTok stars, basically anybody who can hold an audience. And usually mm. that's the most polarized, ridiculous ridiculous stuff that you've ever seen, or it's just mesmerizing content where people are kind of lulled into submission, I guess. I don't know. It's like, mm -hmm. it's the closest thing we have to magic to understand why people are captivated by this stuff. But why do you think it is? Because the world is chaotic. You know, Yuval Noah Harari talks about how change is at an exponential pace and people are looking for things that soothe them and mm. looking for things that give them certainty and calmness, or they go all the way ratchet, you know, and they're just looking for the wildest stuff that confirms their greatest fears and they live in absolute pandemonium. Mm -hmm. The sensible almost have no place. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I really love your book because there are a lot of books that try to get people to think more logically, more rationally, like you mentioned, Demon Haunted World, such a classic. And then I have the Jonathan Rausch's book, which is trying to lay out the foundation for knowledge. But I think what conspiracy does is it probably hooks people who are interested in this, either by the phenomenon to say, why do people go down this route? Or maybe even people who believe these things. And then you give them tools. And I love the perspective that you take, because what I really wanted to talk to you about was 
how can we harness these people to do better? I love their creative thinking. These conspiracy theorists are so imaginative. <laughs> we need more speculation like this in the world, but then we need to evaluate it critically. Mm -hmm. So who's going to read this book? Do you? Who'd you write it for? Everybody, really. It's for anybody interested in the subject, which is everybody, as we've seen. It's not a fringe topic. We started publishing Skeptic in 92, and it was always pretty fringy conspiracy theories that the reptilian aliens are running the world, or the Illuminati, or the Bilderbergers, or the Rothschilds, and JFK assassination, that kind of stuff. But not many mainstream people are interested in it. In the last decade or so, I think it's become clear Conspiracy theories are pretty mainstream, actually. If you look back just in U.S. history, that goes all the way back to the founding of the Republic, there was always conspiracy theories about what the English were up to or what the Catholics were up to or what the Jews were up to. Those are more mainstream kind of beliefs. And the First World War was launched by a conspiracy theory. And the, the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion was a fake Russian document that was a, purported to be a conspiracy theory about how the Jews were plotting to take over the world, which Hitler utilized in the stab in the back conspiracy theory in the 1920s that the only reason the Germans lost the First World War was because of the Jews. And you can just go all the way through the 1950s. The entire Cold War is driven by conspiracy theories about what the Russians are doing or what the Chinese are doing or what the North Koreans are doing. I mean, all the CIA programs that I talk about in the book, like MK Ultra, dosing U.S. citizens with mind control drugs like LSD, or at least what they thought would be mind control drugs. And that was all fueled by the conspiracy theory about the Russians are doing this or the Koreans are doing this, or the Project Paperclip, which was us absconding with German scientists before the Russians got them. And, you know, a lot of these scientists that we brought over after the war, including most famously Werner von Braun, who pretty much directed the whole Apollo program and got us to the moon, he's a genius. But he also ran a, a rocket center in Petamunde that was driven mostly by slave labor of Jews. And something on the order of 30,000 Jews died in the local concentration camp there and he of course he knew about this right but the government covered that up even as they were trying other nazi criminals as war criminals our government did that right that's pretty mainstream this only came out really in the last 20 years or so what was actually going on in the 90s and so all the way up to the 2016 election, the 2020 election, everybody thinks these things are rigged or it's, there's some shenanigans going on all the way to January 6th. These are events that happen because people believe in their heart a conspiracy is afoot and we mm -hmm. got to do something about it. All the way to mm -hmm. the president himself saying they are stealing our country from us. They are taking our democracy away. We're going to go down there. We're going to be strong. We're going to be peaceful. And uh, <laughs> let's march down there and let them know what we think. That's a conspiracy theory, and people believed it, and mm -hmm. um, they act on their beliefs. So the, really, the book is is trying to make the argument that this is not fringe. This has never mm -hmm. been fringe. It's always been mainstream. It's serious, and we really need to get a handle on it. And there's a lot of research. There's always been research, you know, academics that study this. Not many. Again, it's always been kind of fringy. But for psychologists and sociologists study conspiracy theories. But now there's a pretty big body of literature, peer-reviewed journal articles, experiments, research. And so I summarize all that and then offer some of my own ideas about that. Yeah, we're just seeing it more. Probably a confirmation bias. It, it's always been there, like you said, but we're just noticing it more because all of this stuff is becoming available. Information is so ubiquitous. And I think that's a good thing because it's revealing that it's actually a problem and it always has been. Perhaps it's something that's holding us back in our own evolution. But I think the problem here is we can't stand conspiracy theorists. Us rationalists or people who consider themselves 
logical people. We hate them for some reason. There's so much like anger and rage, especially what I've seen on the left. They get very angry at these people. I don't know what they think we can do with them. They, the only way to combat this is to actually engage with them and talk with them and kind of erode that limbic response for something more cognitive. So you talk about the reason these people have conspiracies in their mind, and it's biological. There are good reasons for this. The one I like the most is the proxy to truth, that there is something true underneath all of this. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so my th three-tiered theory for why people believe conspiracy theories is proxy conspiracism, tribal conspiracism, and constructive conspiracism. So proxy is the, the conspiracy theory itself, whether it's true or not, is kind of secondary to what it stands for, what's underlying it, what, what, what's really going on, what does the person who believes it care about really? So I just use QAnon or you know, Pizzagate or something like this. It, whether or not Hillary's really running a secret satanic pedophile ring out of a pizzeria in Washington, D.C., come on, who would actually believe that? Well, you know, one guy did, Edgar Welch. He went there with his gun to shoot the place up, which is what you would do if you really believed it, right? You know, there's this crime going on. Oh, my God, the children are being harmed. I'm going to go down there and stop it. The police won't do anything about it. I'm going in. He actually left a note to his daughter going, I'm going in. I would do this for you if, if you were the victim, right? But most people don't really believe it. It's more of a kind of a proxy belief. Well, that's the kind of thing Democrats would do or Hillary would do or we don't like them. So it's not like as if I took you to the pizzeria and showed you that there's no satanic pedophile ring. You'd go, oh, in that case, I'll vote for Hillary. You were never going to vote for Hillary, right? Because you don't trust them. You don't trust the Democrats. They're socialists. They're, they they want to destroy America or whatever it is you think. And so the, the pizza gate QAnon thing that this is all just kind of a proxy for something else and mm -hmm. its truth value is sort of secondary and, you mm -hmm. know, the, the type of specimen I used in the book was the OJ trial mm -hmm. which you know OJ was acquitted based on a conspiracy theory that the, the LAPD planted the bloody glove and other evidence the blood splatter and so on I cited this ESPN documentary OJ in America that tracked the kind of history of African Americans in LA going back to post-World War II in the 1950s and how bad it was. The police were really pretty racist. Mm -hmm. They planted evidence. They did under the pretense that, well, this guy may get off and we know he did it. So let's make sure he doesn't get off by planting some extra evidence. They did do that. <laughs> I don't think they do this anymore, but uh, they did do that. So to the jury of mostly African American jurors, it kind of rang true, even though you couldn't possibly think he, he didn't kill Nicole Brown Simpson and her friend. The evidence was overwhelming. But in a way for them, it was a stand in for something else. And maybe mm -hmm. in this case, a little bit of payback for Rodney King where the police beat him and they got off. They were acquitted. It's like that just never set well. So and even that, how is it possible in a just fair society that we all saw the video of the police just wailing away on this guy and they were acquitted. Come on. It just doesn't seem right. Right. So that's the proxy conspiracism. Right. Well, I think the same thing with George Bush, you know, the famous clip. We must stop the terror. I call upon all nations to do everything they can to stop these terrorist killers. Thank, Thank you. you. Now watch this drive. People really wanted George Bush to be a villain. I think what he was was something different, like maybe a pawn in a greater villainy, perhaps. But you can't say because of that it was a direct conspiracy. But I think they take all these little things in their mind. And if one of these things is true, it means the whole thing is true. Mm. So they're kind of snowballing. But the Pizzagate situation, the one thing I respect about that is the action. The action was awful. 
but it was still action, which is better than apathy, right? Hmm. So what do you think we could take from this to drive action in society? Well, so in this case, it is good to have facts. That's always what's true always matters, but it's not enough. You have to kind of drill down and figure out if you're talking to a conspiracy theorist, what is it that really concerns you? Or what do you think is the problem here? Why are you going down this path? And you know, usually there is some deeper thing. And it usually has to do with power, who has it, who doesn't, who, you know, and what powerful people are doing behind closed doors because they do, <laughs> right? It's the third leg in the three-legged stool is the constructive conspiracism. There are conspiracies, really, there are, there always have been. Two or more people plotting in secret to do something to a third party without their knowledge or consent it, that to gain an unfair or immoral or illegal advantage. That has always happened in history. So I argue we've actually evolved a kind of a constructive conspiracism cognition in which we be we are kind of suspicious. A little bit of parent, a little paranoia is not a bad thing because maybe they are out to get you <laughs> or maybe your fellow workmates really are talking about you and they're trying to get rid of you or trying to prevent you from getting the raise or whatever. And this, and there's studies showing this, that people in, in a company that's not very transparent, where it isn't clear who makes what and how you get a raise and how you move up. And it seems like some people are moving up faster or getting paid more than you are. And it, and it isn't clear why. And to you, they don't seem better than you or they don't seem to work harder than you. And what's the deal? That's where people are very suspicious about cabals going on in the company and for a good reason. I mean, this is, this is one reason why com some companies try to practice blatant transparency. Here's, here's what everybody makes and here's how you get there. And then conspiracism drops in those cases. So it's uncertainty, lack of transparency, people in power may be doing something, I just don't know. And historically people in power where there's no transparency do do things like that, right? And so it's, it's good to be a, li a little constructively paranoid. Right. Where have you had success with this in the past? Have you spoken to a conspiracy theorist who has gone from conspiracy theorist to logical mm. thinker? Yeah, I have. Yeah, for sure. Although it's hard to tell because I don't have a data set on this, but the, I think the best we can hope for is to plant a seed of doubt and then maybe quietly on their own later, they change their mind. This would be true of any belief. Like it used to be, have you ever talked somebody out of believing in God? Well, I, I don't know because they usually don't tell me. It usually just happens later quietly. Like in my case, I just stopped believing quietly and just didn't tell anybody when I was an evangelical and then not. And I think that's the case when you're talking to a conspiracy theorist, you just ask questions like, you know, how do you know that's true? Or what's your source for that? Or what would it take to change your mind? Or how would you try to falsify that, that hypothesis or test that conspiracy theory? What, what would be counter evidence to that? That kind of thing. And you just kind of get them thinking, yeah, hmm, maybe that source is not that trustworthy. Maybe I better look into this a little bit more. And most of us are unlikely to want to admit we were wrong. So usually that happens quietly, privately, and right. that's fine, whatever it takes. I think in the case of the rigged election conspiracy theory for 2020, I think that will just collapse completely. First of all, n nobody in the higher up ranks of the Republican Party, the GOP, believes it. We're, we, we now know from enough interviews that that none of these senators and congressmen and, and governors and so on believed it. They never believed it, but they went along with it more for kind of Machiavellian political gain purposes. Trump will support me if I support him. And if I doubt the rigged conspiracy theory, he's going to primary me, he's going to endorse somebody else and I'll be out of a job. But the rank and file who say that they believe it, and, and there's tens of millions of Republicans say they believe it. Some, something mm -hmm. like, I don't know, almost half the last poll taken think that 
the 2020 election was rigged. They probably actually do believe it because the boss told them so. And uh, and, the, and this is my second tier, the tribal conspiracism. You know, this is what our tribe believes. And who am I to argue? I'm a member in good standing. I'm a good Republican. I'm a good conservative. And if this is what most conservatives say they believe, well, I'm just going to go along with it. Now, no one says I'm just going to go along with it, but they, they, they do just think there's some truth to it because everybody else is doing it. And so, right. and, and in a way, the crazier the conspiracy theory or the more unlikely it is to be true, the stronger your commitment by publicly signaling that you believe it. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a virtue signal, a costly signaling, it's called. Again, I think once publicly enough leaders of the GOP say, I don't think this is true. And if Trump fades, say someone like Ron DeSantis wins the primary, it'll collapse immediately. Everyone will just quit talking about it. Right. Until there's something nefarious that we need to talk about. And then we can remind everybody that the 2016 election was rigged. They'll go back and use this <laughs> right. to bolster a, an argument. Hillary's emails. <laughs> right. It's these talking points. So the the thing for me, I really like these conversations. I like talking to people I disagree with. I lived in Portland during the whole Bogosian incident, mm. we'll call it. And so I got his mm-hmm. book right away. And I remember him talking about a moment of aporia where you're speaking with someone and it becomes very clear they're at the limit of their knowledge. And if they've been rational up until this point, cool. But the second they hit that moment, they panic because they're reaching for something that they don't have. And very few people, I think, will say, you know what, I don't know much about this at this point. I'm not comfortable talking about it or I'll get back to you on that. They're looking for some certainty to present to you Mm -hmm. so that they don't lose face or lose an argument. Mm -hmm. And you talk about that book. I think that's another great book with lots of great tips on obviously how to have impossible conversations. Mm -hmm. But on our part, the rationalists or the logicians, we'll call it, I think a lot of us push too far. We don't appreciate that moment. We don't even recognize it. It slips past most of us so quickly. And it may come very quick in a conversation when you're speaking with someone and all of a sudden you realize they don't know shit. (laughs) We just keep pushing and you realize, no, there's a limit to that knowledge. Now you need to plant a small seed and let them go on their merry way. But I think people really want to see some like fireworks going off, like, huh, I never thought of it that way. And Mm -hmm. that's never going to happen, right? Very rare. I mean, just think about how many politicians, professional politicians change parties. It almost never happens. And when it does, it's a front page story because it could tilt the balance of Congress and so on. So, Or a religious lead changes religions. It almost never happens. Imagine the Pope going, you know, what? I think that Protestant thing is looking pretty good. I'm going to be a Baptist. <laughs> it's never going to happen, <laughs> right? Because in part, there's so much social capital wrapped up in that position, right? So religious people that like I used to hear hear from them all the time, like I'm in this small town, I, I, I get skeptic magazine like i put it in a a brown paper bag so no one can see it right because everybody in town goes to church and the only question in in the town is which baptist church do you go to so for those people i feel sorry for them because maybe their whole family and friends and their workmates everybody is religious and they're not and that would be true with the conspiracy theory again the tribal conspiracism if everybody in your tribe believes x it's hard to stand out and say you know what i just don't think so so one, one thing we need to do is make it okay kind of broaden the 
set of criteria of what it means to be a good, say, conservative or liberal by saying it's okay to be skeptical of some of the points in your party and still be a good party member. And this is true on the left too. We're kind of critical of the right here, but on the left, it's become where if you're not a social justice activist and a progressive and, and you're super woke, then you're not a true liberal. No, actually, that's not the case at all, particularly for a lot of old school liberals that were being called, you know, Nazis for not accepting, you know, the total woke program. No, that's not acceptable, right? We need a broader tent and it should be okay to doubt things, even some central tenets like Liz Cheney. But look what happened to her. I mean, I don't agree with Liz Cheney on much of anything politically, but she's my hero because she stood up for truth. There's something deeper in this and that we should care about the truth. Yeah, I think, but things did, like you said, they didn't turn out so good for her. Todd Cashton just came on my podcast a couple weeks ago, mm. and he's talking about a principled rebellion. And there are so many places where we need principled rebels. But I'm wondering, how do we incentivize this? Where are the structures to incentivize politicians to say, I changed my mind? Mm -hmm. Even in science, people are not incentivized to be wrong. You are incentivized to discover something, then chip away at that rather than throw it all away and go, oh, I was wrong. 20 years of my life, I, w I was studying bullshit. Where's the incentive structure for this? What could we do? Right. Well, one thing we can reinforce the norms of the constitution of knowledge, since you mentioned Jonathan Rausch's book, those kind of things of like principles of changing your mind when the evidence changes, being open to new evidence, considering putting some percentage of confidence in your belief rather than saying, this is what I believe a hundred percent. Nothing's a hundred percent. And just being more Bayesian in your reasoning. Like I'm, I'm going to say I'm 90% sure, I'm 80% sure. Even if the percentages don't mean anything specifically, it's just kind of a vague notion that think this is really probably true. You know, the Big Bang Theory, it's really, really, really probably true. Not 100%. You know, just even doing that kind of tips your thinking toward being more cautious and willing to change your mind about other things. And then we should reinforce that in the same way that we monitor language in kind of a bottom-up process where, you know, like the N-word became taboo and for good reason. And there was no law passed, you know, nobody at the top said, okay, you can't use this word anymore. Everybody kind of through osmosis just realized that's just not cool. It's just embarrassing. And that's, that's how to change the norms. Just make it embarrassing. Like being a member of the KKK, yeah. that's embarrassing. Are you kidding me? That's stupid. Are you an idiot? Bring back shunning. Let's shun people again. Shun people. Yeah. Yeah. In a way. Yeah. That because no one wants to be embarrassed. But that's a negative reinforcer. What are the positive reinforcements to that mm. say like, hey, good on you. You you admitted you were wrong. It's never like, wow, congratulations. You spent five years on this discovery and it means nothing. <laughs> well, just the virtues of skepticism that uh, it's good to change your mind. That's a virtue, not a vice. Politics, mm -hmm. it's a vice. You're a flip-flopper. We can't trust you to uphold our principles because you're willing to change your mind about things. We have to change that attitude. You could still be a principled conservative or liberal and still say, you know, I was wrong about abortion or immigration or whatever the issue is and still be principled. And if, if enough of us say it and repeat it, I think it, it does happen. I mean, Jonathan talks about this in the book, the kind of consistency across fields for this constitution of knowledge, journalism and fact-checking. And in science, you have peer review. And in the law, you have this kind of confrontational structure between different attorneys. And there's kind of social technology to get at the truth. We might be wrong. So even just saying that, that it's a virtue to say I might be wrong. I suppose it may depend on how core the particular belief is that somebody may change their mind on. If you're an evangelical Christian and you say, well, you know, I no longer think Jesus was resurrected from the dead. 
well, then what does it mean to be an evangelical Christian? On the other hand, I most of my Jewish friends are, are in academia and most of them are atheists. So, mm -hmm. and, you know, and they say, well, I'm a cultural Jew. I, I really appreciate the traditions, the holidays and the rituals. And even though I don't believe any of the, the supernatural behind it, it's part of my tradition. I was raised this way. I, I know Catholics like Julia Sweeney, the, the Saturday Night Live comedian who did that monologue, Letting Go of God. She talks about how beautiful Catholicism can be, even though she's now an atheist. So I get that, and maybe that's an avenue. You know, you can mm -hmm. still have some appreciation for this core belief of what it does for people. In a way, I kind of like some of Jordan Peterson's work that it's mythologically true or it's psychologically true. Well, what does that mean? Well, in a way you're saying, well, I don't know if it's literally true or empirically true, but it, it has some other truth for me. And mm. it, I'm, I'm kind of trying this on, like in, in, in a way saying, you know, that's okay. And, you know, the example I've used on my, my podcast many times is this conference I was at with Richard Dawkins and Ken Miller, the guy who almost single-handedly debunked the intelligent design creationists in their arguments about the bacteria flagellum and blood clotting and all the different things that evolution cannot account for. Therefore, that's what God did it. God of the gaps argument, right? So anyway, we were all at this conference on science and religion and and uh, Dawkins starts pushing Miller because Ken wrote this book about intelligent design creationism why it's wrong and, and then the last chapter he says by the way I'm a Catholic and I accept Jesus as my savior he died for our sins and, uh, and Richard's like what how can a guy what? like you such a great scientist and debunker of creationism what's this Catholicism business and so Richard was pushing him on this saying you know what if we found a piece of the true cross you know a little hunk of wood you know in the middle ages everybody had a piece of the true cross in their church right <laughs> And, but let's say we actually had one and there was a little bit of flesh on there and now we can extract the DNA and reconstruct the genome. And, and since Jesus was born of a virgin and the father was God, not Joseph, well, must have some kind of different DNA. So we should be able to test this hypothesis. And Ken was like, Richard, 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 I'm not claiming this is true. Like in some biological sense that like you can test this. This is just what I believe. I'm a Catholic. This is my faith. And in a way, it's kind of a conversation stopper. It's like, oh, okay, well, now what? Now nothing. It's like, that's it. It's true for him. That's how he was raised. That's, you know, whatever it means, not empirically, whatever that means, mythologically true, or it makes me feel good true, or I don't know what. But I think we do have to say that's okay on some level. You know, as long as you're not trying to like teach children in science classes about this, you know, that it's literally true. If you're just saying, look, this is what Catholics believe and you can teach it in a comparative world religions class or comparative mythology class or something like that, but it's not harming anybody, then why not just say that's okay to believe it and accept evolution as the science, right? Right. Again, as, as I say, if you give people a choice between Jesus and Darwin, they're not picking Darwin. No. <laughs> I've, I've experienced this before, and it's a literal conversation stopper. I met my Armenian grandmother first time a few years ago, and she's entrenched in fundamental Christianity. And she said, Hocus, why do you tattoo your skin like this? And I said, well, Nana, why did you pierce your ears? And she says, oh, no, that's different. And I said, get out the Bible. It's in Leviticus. They read it. It said, thou shalt not cut thy flesh. And she mm. was just like, Oh, well, don't make me question my beliefs. This is what I, you know, so this is why I have no interest in debunking because I know underlying that is a soft emotional belly that has nothing to do with the logic and fact. We can argue this all day long, but if we don't actually address the fact that you want to believe this, I'm not going to waste my time with this. And I think that speaks to probably your proxy to truth. Mm -hmm. They want there to be some other truth that's greater. But the point is not, I think, to 
stop these things. In your book, you talk about the value of them. Um, Jared Diamond sleeping under the tree in Papua mm. New Guinea, where mm. they don't sleep under trees. And then he heard trees falling in the distance and he thought, hmm, if it's one <laughs> out of a thousand and I'm sleeping under a tree and one out of a thousand trees fall, I'm going to be dead in a few years. So <laughs> that's a, that's a useful conspiracy. And I love the energy that these people have and the emotion. And I wonder if we try to, you know, ingrain it into them that no, you need to be fully logical and fully rational and these kinds of things. We're going to lose all of that, like beautiful fervor that they have. And it's on us. I don't put it on them. I put it on people like us to appreciate them for what they are and not ridicule them for what they aren't. Right. My approach in the case of like creationists, Christian creationists is to get them to accept evolution by telling them you can still keep Christianity. It's not an either or thing. It's not because what they're concerned about is, well, if I accept Darwinian evolution, then that means atheism is true and there's no basis of morality, moral relativism. And then before you know it, you got the Holocaust and Hitler and blah, no one wants that. Right. <laughs> so I better I better draw the line at this Darwin guy. You got to take that off the table. Just look, you can keep your moral <laughs> principles based on the Bible. You, Jesus died for your sins. You, you have a soul. You're going to heaven. But this is how God created the diversity of life. He used evolution in the same way he used gravity to create planets and solar systems. Oh, okay. You know, again, like the example I use, I would give them Francis Collins' book, The Language of God, because he, he defends evolution. He explains it just as well as Richard does. And, you know, the last chapter, he says, by the way, I'm an evangelical Christian. Here's how I found Jesus. And he was out on this hike and there was this frozen waterfall and I got down on my knees and Whoa, I'm born again. All right. And so people read that and go, oh, this guy's in my tribe. He's one of, mm -hmm. he's like me. And he says, it's okay to accept evolution. Maybe I'll take a look at this thing. So I'm not sure how this would work for in the case of Trump. If it was just kind of a general, I'm a Republican and some election shenanigans go on and I think there might be something there. And then you point out, well, Attorney General Barr, it was hardcore Republican, Liz Cheney. Basically, you look up Republican in the dictionary, it's a picture of her and her dad, right? You can't get more Republican than that. But I'm not sure that would work if you're a Trumper because that's a different thing. That It's tapping something else that it's not just I'm a generic conservative and these are the values we hold. Mm -hmm. uh, there's something else going on there, almost cult-like. And uh, I don't know the solution to that other than get back to your basic principles of conservatism and what the mm -hmm. GOP stands for. But the people who support Trump don't really care. They still like Republicans because I think right. conservatives are very good at focusing their energy in one place. Mm -hmm. And so I think if we transferred this from Trump to DeSantis, once that happens, mm -hmm. it'll it'll change because DeSantis is a little bit more reasonable, not a demagogue kind of like personality yet or hopefully <laughs> ever. But mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of uncertainty and tumult. And when someone steps in, with this bravado and this authority it's claiming they're going to fix everything and they're going to do all of this people want to believe it but i think the left has a similar cult-like problem mm -hmm. it, with the trump derangement syndrome like they mm -hmm. literally think trump is the equivalent of the antichrist come to ruin everything we've built right now there's there's room for criticism on both sides the left and the right for sure the extremes are cult-like or religious-like you know, john mcwarder makes that analogy of wokeness being something like a religion. There's original sin, we're all racist, we're all misogynists or whatever. You cannot really be forgiven other than just asking for forgiveness and, and so on. And we have to make amends and there's it's just this kind of this catechism of things you have to adhere to and say you believe or you're, you're not a good member in standing. You know, again, we have to just kind of emphasize the point. You can be a good liberal and adhere to 
10 of the 12 top liberal values that we hold dear, you know, free speech, separation of church and state, you know, women's reproductive rights, immigration and the foreign policy, whatever it is. They said, well, look, I ticked the box on 10 of the 12. Isn't that enough to be a good liberal? And, and it has to be. No one's going to tick every box. Well, we have to anchor to something. And I think in this book, you're anchoring to rationality. And I think yes, yes. a lot of people in the middle are anchoring on this, you know, rational community kind of that I'm seeing build. I'm seeing a lot more of this now, now that effective altruism has become mainstream, people are interested in how far logic can take us and what it can do. I'm not really so much interested in how far logic can take us on kind of the far end because there are limits to rationality, I'm pretty sure. But just kind of bringing things back to center, I think rationality applied on a low level widespread can do a lot of good. So on this podcast, I think a lot about the institutions that we have, academia being one of them. I think you've had a, such an interesting career because you've kind of straddled academia and communication outside of it. You've written, I don't know, 5,000 books and, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Feels like that sometimes, yes. <laughs> Academics aren't the ones necessarily all reading them. They're touching a lot of right. people. No, actually, most, most of my books are not read by academics primarily, but... This one's published by University Press, Johns Hopkins University Press. So I'm hoping it reaches both audiences because it's a serious work of scholarship. It's 13 books, not, not 5,000. <laughs> I'm not Isaac Asimov. <laughs> yeah, so how do we, you know, kind of broaden the reach there? My approach in the last two chapters, reestablishing trust in our institutions is just since COVID. Oh, Fauci said this, that, he lied, you know, and the CDC said this, and then they changed their mind. Well, they're supposed to change their mind. That's how it works, right? The foundational belief should be, you know, a commitment to truth through rationality, reason, science, the tools, the constitution of knowledge, justified true belief. And it's not just me that thinks it's true. You can look at it too. Here, look, here, look at this, 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 and this, and you tell me what you see. Am I wrong? Am I delusional? Am I hallucinating? And you go, no, I see it too, <laughs> right? And then we say so we have a community of people that go, yep, yep, you know, this is very likely to be true. And from there we can build. It's almost like the free speech that is more fundamental than all the other rights because it's the only way to get the other rights is by thinking and speaking your mind freely. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and mm -hmm. from there you can build then a whole civil society based on rights and justice and freedom and all these other things that follow from that. So you can't cave on free speech. You have to draw the line there. You say, well, I, I think we should censor this person because what they think is, is evil. Well, for the most part, that's probably a bad idea because maybe they're right. How do you know? Probably mm -hmm. good if you, you know, let them speak their mind. I, I agree. And I think the public forums of today are unprecedented. Before you'd had these media personalities that you could never interact with them. Like, you know, you could never talk to Walter Cronkite. But now all I did was reply to a tweet and now, you know, you're on my podcast. <laughs> right. But having you come on, I'm so I was so excited when you asked to come on because I, I was just wondering, you know, how have you kept up this momentum your whole career to just because this is exhausting. I mean, I don't know about you, but just thinking about the different ways to engage with people who are staunchly different from you mm. and ready to attack. Mm. How have you done this for mm. so long? Well, in part, it's my day job. So, you know, I'm, I'm paid to do this by, by the you know, skeptics. <laughs> I work for the skeptics. I'm the director, right? And we're a nonprofit. And, but personally, I'm interested in why people believe weird things. That was the title of my first book, and I've always been interested in that. Personally, I, I thought there was something to the supernatural and the paranormal, you know, when I was younger. And 
who would not be interested in those things? You know, what if there is a guy? What if there is ESP? What if you really can't talk to the dead? What if the dead are not dead? They're still somewhere else. Or, you know, what if you could have a perpetual motion machine? Or if there's Bigfoot out there, the aliens have come here. Or they're out there. You know, all this is super interesting to me. And so the, the question is always, you know, but is it true? And mm -hmm. how do you know? And so, I'm, you know, epistemology, before you know it, you're into all the philosophy and science and philosophy of science and so forth. And that's all good. So I'm just, I'm driven in part because I, I would just do this anyway, just out of interest, right? So now okay. I, I get paid to do it, as, as it were. Well, it's the same thing as a college professor. You know, when I was in college, I thought, boy, these guys have a great life. I mean, they get to read and study and give lectures and travel and write books, and they get paid to do this. This seems like a great gig. <laughs> and they get summers off. <laughs> so I thought this is the job for me. <laughs> so in a way, I'm still doing that. I mean, I'm a, still a professor, but this gives me a little more uh, freedom, you know, of reaching people that are not just in the classroom. The world is a classroom, right? And and the internet's made that possible. Podcasting and blogs and the, the large MOOC type courses you can take that universities have, the teaching company, uh, you know, audio books. It's incredibly uh, enriching just in terms of improving your life, just your own thinking. I don't know. I think we're lucky to be at the, alive at this moment. It's just this explosion. It must have been what it's like when the printing press came online. And within a century, you know, books got super cheap and everybody was reading and literacy rates skyrocketed. Like, wow, you know, that must have been a game changer. And we're yeah. kind of going through that now. Yeah, I agree. I, I think all the time about how to create a career out of learning. I'm the first in my family to graduate from college. And when I set foot on uh, University of Central Florida campus, first of all, it's a beautiful campus. But I just looked around and I thought, are you fucking kidding? I get to do this. I get to talk to the, I, re I read these people's research and I get to talk to these people every day <laughs> and learn from them. There's so much information. And uh, it was overwhelming for me. And I said, nope, I want to be an academic. Absolutely want to do this. I want to have students all the time. I want to talk to young minds. And in my naivete, you know, I got a PhD and still thought this was possible. And it just wasn't, you know, there's a pedigree system. And I knew I made one choice, one choice that probably separated me from having an R1 research career. And that was going to a particular institution because my husband his career was taking off, you know, family choices. And then I realized, okay, I don't even know if this is what I want. I've gotten mm. so wrapped up in the trajectory to get what I thought this was. And so I left it all behind, been through several things since then. And I think you have a really good gig because what I do now, what you do on your podcast, your book, very scholarly, this feels like the kind of academia that I wanted to be in. Mm. And I want to cultivate that as much as possible. Why, why couldn't you do this still now, be an academic? You just feel like if you applied, you wouldn't have enough, I don't know, academic papers published or whatever it would take. Oh, and, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. in biomedical sciences, I've been out of this for a while. Mm. I didn't build a postdoc research career. You can't mm. just start. I mean, right. if you don't have a grant, you're not getting a job. You know, it's no secret that the institution stopped growing in the 70s. Mm. And so we have this glut of people like me who have been cultivated as PhDs and taught, if you don't go into academia, you're a failure. Mm. Like my generation of PhDs and mm. kind of the 10 years, 20, give or take surrounding, we were kind of sold a dream, I think. And the dream was never really within our reach. Mm. Because there's, there's more PhDs than there are jobs. Precisely. There's yeah. like 200,000 postdocs out there. Whoa. 
I didn't know the number was that big. Wow. Uh, have you thought about teaching at a community college? Yeah. So there's a college um, out here. It's a for-profit college that is asking me to teach, but they demand so much from their adjunct professors. I don't know how you operate at Chapman, but they want a lot from me. A lot, a lot of classes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I'm lucky there at Chapman. I'm just, I'm a presidential fellow and I just teach one class one day a week, three hours. I want to do that. <laughs> that's a great, that's really great. <laughs> I'm lucky that way, I think. Um, but I taught for 10 years at a community college. I taught intro psych and a few other courses and I really liked it. It was really fun. I think what you're describing, you know, pursuing a research career at a major university, going through the seven years, all that stuff. Yeah, I would not like that. I think as much. I like the teaching. I remember early on when I met Steve Gould and he said something interesting about the amount of time and work it takes to write a big grant. He can write a book and, and get money. He gets a big yes. advance from a publisher and he has a book and he funded his own lab, paleontology, mm -hmm. Harvard. And I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I could see the amount of time professors were spending on writing grants. And it's like you put all this time in and no one reads it other than you know, a couple of people at the granting agency. But mm -hmm. the public's not reading it. Your students aren't reading it. It's just a grant proposal, but it has massive amount of work. Why not write a book? Mm -hmm. So I thought, yeah, I'm going to do that. I want to write books rather than grants. I don't know. <laughs> that is a really interesting um, idea. Why not take grant proposals that aren't funded and do something with them? But the pay lines are insane. You're absolutely right. It takes a huge amount of time. I think it's just really stifling human progress, to be honest, the institution as it stands. You know, in, our, in my book club, we just finished reading an old book by Lee Smolin, though, The Trouble with Physics. Mm. And he talks about the why string theory kind of ran rampant for so long unchecked. Mm. And, you know, it's because everybody is incentivized to keep the wheel moving. Mm. And so I think we haven't changed the academic institution to accommodate what we really want, which is innovation. Mm. So that's kind of what I'm trying to do here is figure out how can we do this moving forward? So I have a guy who he started a journal of conjecture hmm. so, and then like big nerve, I feel like what big nerve is doing, they're cultivating people who want to think. I don't know if you've seen some of these mm -hmm. ideas. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's a few good ones though, you know, <laughs> but you have to allow that people to just be creative and, and spitballing ideas, most of which are going to be worthless, but out of that will come something. I mean, we do know research on, you know, the most creative people are, it's kind of a Darwinian process. They produce a lot of content, most of which is not good. And, but the public or their <laughs> agents or whatever, they, you know, they select the, the handful that we hear and we think, man, that's just a brilliant piece. I love that. But what you don't see is, you know, the, the thousand other pieces they produce, they were just junk. Simon, uh, trying to remember the name of the scientist that studies creativity this way. It's a guy from the like 1980s that was doing this research. Like he showed, for example, that Mozart, you know, first of all, Mozart's father was a composer. You know, he's raised in a family of musicians. He's composing himself at age five. You know, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star was his you know, most famous first com composition. So by the time he's Mozart, you know, the great, one of the greatest composers of all time, he's already put his 10,000 hours in and, and so forth. And, you know, you just don't see that. And the most creative mm -hmm. people, they just produce a lot of stuff. You know, mm -hmm. there was this recent book, uh, I think it's called After Steve. And it's like how Apple has just not been able to match what Steve Jobs did under Tim Cook. And, but the critic, the reviewer of this book in the Wall Street Journal pointed out that how do you top the iPhone? 
I mean, mm-hmm. no one, can, you can only invent it once. It's been mm-hmm. done, you know, and that was a game changer. And who knows what the next equivalent of that is going to be, but it's probably not in that space. It's going to be something mm-hmm. completely different. So it's really unfair to compare Tim Cook at Apple to Steve Jobs because he, you know, he did it. He got that one, right? That was it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like Newton got gravity and Einstein figured out relativity. That's it. It's not going to happen yeah. again. I think that that goes along with the Kuhnian kind of idea of paradigm shift in science. And everybody uses paradigm shifts. So like you talk yeah. about writing grants. I, if I saw, you know, another grant that said paradigm shift, I was going to lose my mind. <laughs> but everybody thinks they're creating a paradigm shift or like a mini paradigm shift. But the truth is you really can't. I mean, the bicycle, well, what are you going to paradigm shift to from that? That is a, an right. amazing invention. Yes. You know? Okay. Motorcycle. Cool. That's a little better. Yeah. But the, the leap from nothing to bicycle was astounding. Right. Well, as you know, I'm a cyclist, so I get a new bike every about three years. And they are better. They they improve, but incrementally, like just like 1% better. You know, this one is two ounces lighter. The carbon fiber frame is, you know, slightly better than the steel frame. And, you know, the electronic shifting is slightly better than the manual shifting. And, you know, we all rave about these things. Oh, you know, the carbon fiber makes such a difference. And, you know, but by such a difference, we mean like 1% rather than one tenth of 1% or no, no difference. Mm-hmm. So that's, and that's true for most inventions. Yeah. No one's going to reinvent the uh, search engine. I mean, that's, it, mm-hmm. it's been done, you know, mm-hmm. and there were search engines before the, you know, the Google guys, but they weren't very good. And how do you top that? You know, you'd be like saying right. Google has not topped the search engine. How do you top that? That was it. <laughs> well, when you're thinking in the context of search engines, when you're thinking in the context of bicycle, yeah, sure, it's done. But it, once you transcend that, like, where's the where's the flying cars and hoverboards? You know, we have to like, <laughs> in order to see right. progress, you have to think completely different right. outside of the normal development of the thing that you're looking at. So that's what I'm kind of thinking about with academia. No one's going to top this institution for learning. It creates people who are great at doing certain jobs. You know, they they rank and file into society and do the things they're supposed to do. But if we are headed towards a society where we don't need rank and file type people anymore, maybe we need a new kind of institution. If we want this to be an extension of high school daycare, basically, fine. But then where's the lifetime learning? What incentives do we have in society for that? There's your solution, Natasha. That's what you should do. You are doing that. I would say pursue this at this point. You're yeah. right. It's probably too late to do the traditional academic track now for you. It would be for me too. I mean, I, if I just applied for a job, I don't have that many peer-reviewed journal articles compared to my popular books or whatever, and they don't care about right. popular books. So yeah, so just find some other niche that you're good at. Well, you are, you're good at this. But you know, and uh, since you mentioned the for-profit schools, I, I don't think academia is doomed. I don't think brick and mortar uh, university campuses are are, are going to go extinct anytime soon, if ever. But I do think that the the market will broaden for you know autodidacts, people, lifelong learners that want to keep going, and they're looking for sources. You know, so again, podcasts are great, and audiobooks and the teaching company courses, and and now Wondrium because they have all kinds of additional content. And you know, mm-hmm. but but that's just the start. I mean, there should be a hundred mm-hmm. sources like that. You could be one of those. Why not do that? <laughs> And uh, yeah, I want to contribute for sure. It's no longer unusual to be in your 80s and still active. E.O. Wilson went to Africa in his 80s and he did like some of his like greatest work, like biodiversity stuff. Yes, so that's right. Yeah. Ernst yeah. Mayer, the great evolutionary theorist at, at Harvard, he I, ta- I gave I called him on his hundredth birthday. 
I said, what are you doing, Aaron? So I'm working on three different papers and I have a book I'm, I got coming out and I'm, you know, wow, okay. <laughs> this yeah. is this is a good role model. Just keep going. I love it. Yeah, keep the brain, keep the brain active, keep the body active. Yeah, so there's yeah. no reason why you can't do that. You should do that. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm going to try, but I got to keep up with you. Um, but I'm sure your book is going to do great because you have built a really dynamic and interesting audience you mm. have a lot of people who like to think in your audience i hope so because you know getting back to where we started i think conspiracies conspiracies are real conspiracy theories are mainstream uh, i mean they're right there in our face i mean even just like to take the news story yesterday about the uh, Nord Stream explosion so here we have something like a conspiracy theory the russians did it americans did it maybe it's just an accident you know the principle conspiracy principle i have in the book you know never attribute to malice what can be explained by incompetence or accident or chance it's a signal detection problem how do you know if the conspiracy theory is true or not right so that's why i mm -hmm. have that chapter on you know how to detect true conspiracy theories there's no foolproof algorithm but there are some questions you can ask yeah i well i think i love what you said about why you're in this I mean, you, you want to understand why these things are. And I think that seed of curiosity in these people who are interested, I don't know if you'll have conspiracy theorists read this book or not, but little, little side note, my husband loves conspiracy theories. He, we had a moment in our marriage where I said, if I walk in here and you're watching ancient aliens, I might divorce you on the spot. Um, it's just it's funny. Apparently there's a lot of marriages that fell apart over QAnon. I can see why, but the thing I respect and admire about him is the creativity and interest he has. He's like, oh, I want to know more about this. Mm. And he's learned a lot about a lot of different things through this interest in conspiracy. I always try to see the bright side, and I think you did a beautiful job of that in the book of trying to see why we do this, why rational people have these irrational thoughts, and how we can kind of uh, massage that a little bit <laughs> in our interactions right. with them. Right. I worked on this Netflix show about how the mind works uh, episode on brainwashing. And we found this woman who was, she had her own PR company. That was it. And, you know, attractive woman, very successful, happily married with kids, the whole thing, living the dream. And then she went down the rabbit hole of QAnon. And I mean, it just got worse and worse and worse. And she even had recorded on her phone or message her husband left her. You know, if you don't drop this, <laughs> I'm leaving you. I'm taking the kids. And he did. I mean, she's just, I mean, this is, in, you know, she's basically saying, this is insane. This is how much I lost my mind. I'm willing to give up my marriage, my kids, my home, my career, all the money, I, you know, everything just for this goofy idea of QAnon. And basically it was how she got out of it. Some fact checking and friends and family being supportive. And so, but it took a, a long time. Yeah. It is not sexy work. Let's just say that. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's hard. It's tedious. It requires a lot of patience, a lot of anchoring and interpersonal kind of ability. But I think you've got a lot of tools in this book. I mean, you really summarize a lot of other people's tools as well. The baloney detection toolkit in there, the impossible conversations. It's a really nice repository oh, for all you. of that kind of stuff. Thank you. Now we just need to go do it. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks for joining us here on Neo Academia. To learn more about how to examine your favorite conspiracy theory, check out Michael Shermer's book, Conspiracy. If you'd like the full video from this episode, subscribe to the Theory Gang YouTube channel. And you can also sign up to receive show notes, readocracy collections, and bonus content straight to your inbox at theorygang.io forward slash newsletter.